Well, good afternoon, Redeemer. My name is Chris Lejeune, and I serve here as one of the elders of the church. If this is your first time with us today, perhaps your first time with us online, you join us as we're making our way through the Gospel of John. And as we've considered this book, we have been constantly reminded of John's intention for giving us this gospel account so that we would believe. Now, as we look at this passage today, we're going to be forced to ask some very serious questions about our own lives. And my prayer is that rather than discouraging us, rather than feeling nervous or concerned, that we would walk away from today feeling the weight of our sin, the seriousness of our sin, but being in awe of a Savior who confronts us and holds out eternal life. And that we will be reminded, as I just mentioned, that this has been given to us so that we would believe. But before we get started, let me pray for us. And as I do, let me encourage you to hear these words from 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may, be, may be complete, equipped for every good work. Friends, let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your goodness and your grace. We thank you for your provision. We thank you that we have the opportunity to gather together, to open your word freely without fear of persecution. And Lord, we thank you that you have given us this passage today. We thank you that you give us your word that confronts, that convicts, and Father, we pray that through the power of your Spirit, the, our sin would be made real. We would not just brush it aside. But Lord, as we, we feel that, Lord, we pray that Christ would be magnified, that you would be glorified. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you haven't already done so, let me encourage you to turn to John chapter 4, starting at verse 1. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. Our passage begins with this ever-increasing interest in what Jesus is doing, an interest in his ministry. And it's again by these men, the Pharisees, they always have to know what's going on. We've told that they have taken notice that Jesus, through his disciples, has now been baptizing more people than John the Baptist. You remember earlier on, they sent a whole bunch of people to John the Baptist to find out who he was and what he was doing. And this increased interest sees Jesus and his disciples now moving away from Judea, where we had seen the cleansing of the temple. We saw Jesus' interaction with Nicodemus. And they're now making their way back to Galilee. This is the region where Jesus turned the water into wine. And something for us to note here is that these places weren't exactly close by. 
You know, traveling from Jerusalem to Samaria wasn't a quick jump. It wasn't like going from Gahu to Rashidia. No, this is more like walking from downtown Dubai to Umar Kuwain by foot. And we thought we had a tough drive in Tarak every week. Have a look at the map. There should be a map that comes up on screen. It'll just give you an idea. Down in the south is where Judea was, and they were making their way up to the top there where Galilee is. And this area of Samaria, this uh, town of Sakar, is kind of right in the middle. It's, it's a fair distance. As one commentator notes, the journey would take about a day and a half. So if they let, left at six o'clock in the morning, they would arrive in Sakar by the second day at around the sixth hour, which would have been noon. And that's where we are. Look at verse 5. He comes to the town of Samaria called Sakar, near the field that Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. And this is where we're going to be spending the rest of our time. This is where our passage takes place, at this well. Look at verse 7. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. John, the gospel writer, notes the the, the cultural context of this time by drawing our attention to this interaction between Jesus and this woman. This, This was not a lawful interaction. There was a tension and sometimes even a hatred between the Jews and the Samaritans that even at one point ended up in bloodshed. For a Jewish man to engage with anyone from Samaria would have been bad enough. But he's engaging with a woman of Samaria. Not only that, he's asking her for a favor. It just wasn't done. It's by no means a normal practice. And that's why this lady is is, is taken by surprise. How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me? Another thing that is, is, is important for us to notice here, aside from Jesus initiating the conversation, um, we, we need to note that the, the time of the day that this woman was coming to the well. This was not the, the normal time that anyone would go to the well to draw water. Normally, women would go in a group, or if she was perhaps married or lived with family members, they would go together to the well. Very rarely would they go alone, and it would usually be at the, the early part of the morning or late in the evening. And the reason for, for her coming, as you'll see in a little bit, will become clear. So Jesus initiates this conversation, asking for a drink, and, and this woman is taken aback. She's surprised. But... As she gives this answer to Jesus, asking how he can ask her for water, Jesus' response, again, very similar to what we saw a couple weeks ago with Nicodemus, is not related to her question. He just goes and makes a statement. Verse 10, Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Jesus really just seems to cut straight to the point here. This doesn't have anything to do with cultural norms and practices. You shouldn't be surprised that I'm asking you for a drink. Rather, 
your response should be to ask me for living water. However, her response shows that she's missing the point of what Jesus is offering. She looks at Jesus and states the obvious, but you have nothing with which to draw water from this well. Where do you get the living water if not from this well? Now, this well was about 30 meters or 100 feet deep. You couldn't just reach in and take a cup of water. Perhaps being somewhat skeptical, she even tries to highlight just how great this particular well is. Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well. He drank from it. So did his sons and his livestock. She's saying, you have this living water, but where's your proof? We have Jacob who gave us this well. One of the patriarchs. He drank from it. His sons, the livestock. This water is flowing abundantly. It's been around for ages and we are still able to drink from it today. Where's your living water? In fact, this well still exists even today. It's on the, currently today, it's the site of a Greek Orthodox church. But Jesus says to her, everyone who drinks from this well, everyone who drinks the water from this well is going to be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. As Jesus responds to this woman, he just reiterates the point that he's not actually talking about physical water. He's pointing to the fact that what he has to offer her, what he is holding out is far greater than any physical blessing that she could hope to achieve or gain. gain. Now, I do want us to just pause a second and just, just consider this section that we're looking at. I mean, in many ways, we can, to some degree, sympathize with this woman. It's hot. The sun's at the highest part of the day. The well is deep. She needs water. This is probably something she does on a daily basis. It's not easy. And here's this Jewish man offering her water that will sustain her forever. She thinks she's just won the jackpot. This is awesome. This guy is offering water. That means I will never have to come here again. I will never get thirsty again. She says, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty. I have to come here to draw water. But friends, let's not allow the circumstance to cloud the importance of what's actually going on here. Jesus is telling her that while she has a need, what she is seeking, what she is trying to draw out each and every day will never satisfy her. The mistake she's making is very, is very much the same mistake that so many people today make. The idea that the things of this world, the physical things that this world has to offer, money, fame, houses, fancy cars, that all these things will somehow satisfy us. If we just have that one thing, then everything will be fine. All my problems gone. Life will be so much water again. Jesus is right in front of her. And she is looking for physical blessing. And sadly, there are many preachers who will tell you that that's what it's all about. That's what following Jesus is all about. The physical blessings that you can have now. If only you just come to Jesus, only you have faith, then all those problems will be taken care of. 
all your desires can be fulfilled now. But the point is, you're miss, they're missing the point. It's not about the physical blessings. It's about the treasure that is right in front of you. As you sit here today, either here in person or online, I need to ask you, what is it that you're looking for? Why did you join the live stream or, or why did you stop on the link as you were scrolling through YouTube? Are you here because perhaps you feel that things have gotten a little bit tough and if you just keep up your end of the bargain with God, if you just log on to a church service or come in person, then that's you keeping up your end of the deal and then somehow God will keep up His end of the deal and He will bless you abundantly. Friend, is Jesus right in front of you and you're more concerned with physical blessings and physical well-being rather than your spiritual well-being. If that's the case, I urge you, repent. Turn away from that. Your greatest need isn't physical. Your greatest need isn't material. Your greatest need is eternal life. Look again at what Jesus is holding out. Verse 14, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. He's holding out this gift of eternal life. He's holding it out for her. And what he's holding out, what he's holding out to each and every one of us makes the world's greatest treasures look like a filthy heap of garbage. But this living water that Christ has to offer, it's not something that we can earn. It's not something that we can, can try harder to get. It's not something that we can attain to or if we good, live good enough lives, it's not something that we can buy with earthly riches. But as we will see, it is something that does come with a cost. Look at verse 16. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying I have no husband. For you have had five husbands and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Jesus seems to, to suddenly change the flow of this conversation and instructs this woman to go and call her husband. But as it turns out, she didn't have a husband. She's had five and the man that she's with now isn't even her husband. Now, we can speculate what the translation means, whether it's man or husband, or that she's been married and divorced or, or widowed five times. But the, the point here is that her lifestyle was irregular. And the situation she appears to be in now is adulterous, inappropriate. Whatever the case may be, it was something that clearly brought about guilt and shame and isolation. And this is the reason why she's at the well. This is why she's here at the well at this time of day by herself. But as shocking as this may be, it's not the, the biggest standout point of this section. It's the fact that Jesus knew this. This, this Jewish rabbi who's engaged with this woman is now confronting her with her sin. 
I think it's going to be good for us to just spend some time considering this truth for our own hearts, our own lives, our own souls. As difficult as it may be, the reality is that our greatest problem is our sin. Our greatest need, as we've already said, is nothing material, it's nothing physical. It's the need to be reconciled to a holy and righteous God. You see, in order for us to partake of this living water, as I said earlier, it comes with a cost. A cost that is in some way twofold. The one is a cost to us, and the other is a cost to God himself. Now, don't get me wrong. When I say that there is a cost to us, I'm not in any way suggesting legalism. When I say cost, I'm not saying that this is something that we need to pay, but... Just as Jesus confronts this woman with her sin, friends, I feel there are many of us sitting here today, either in person or online, who have yet to be confronted with our sin. Perhaps we've downplayed our sin. Thought of it as, well, it's not really such a big deal. Perhaps it's adultery. Perhaps your marriage has taken so much strain over these past 18 months with the COVID pandemic that your spouse and you have, have just fallen apart in terms of living together. It's just the stress and strain has been too much. Or perhaps your spouse has had to go back to your home country and the freedom you've now had to, to maybe explore other things with other people is, is right in front of you. And instead of guarding your, your marriage, instead of protecting the covenant that you made with your wife before God, you say, well, I have needs. I have desires that need to be fulfilled. What she doesn't know won't hurt her. Friend, if this is you, I urge you, repent. Turn away from this sin. Confess it, bring it to light. Maybe it's not adultery. Maybe it's your anger. You know, you're fine with when you're around friends or co-workers, but man, let that person cut you off on Sheikh Zayed Road and that's it. Or you get home and your children are just getting underneath you and you just blow your top. You say, if only they didn't do that, you wouldn't have behaved that way. You justify it. If that is you, you need to repent. Now, it, it may be easier for us to take uh, notes of, of these bigger sins, um, things like pride, greed, drunkenness, porn, lust. The reality is that so often it's the more subtle sins that we seek to justify, that we seek to, to downplay or perhaps even just simply pass them off as cultural. It's a feeling of superiority you perhaps feel when you meet or engage with someone from a different race or, or culture or social standing. The feeling that because they're from a certain country or English isn't their first or sec their second or third language, or is their first or second, um, is their second or third language, that the somehow they're just not on the same level as you. Because they didn't have the same education as you, they're not quite up there with you. And you immediately look down on them. 
If that's you sitting here today, friend, you need to repent. Perhaps it's the other way around. Maybe you're the one who's feeling inferior when you walk into these situations, when you engage with people from a different culture, different race, different class. Friend, if that is you, you need to repent. We have all been created in the image of God, which means that there is not one race, culture, or country that is superior to another. Not only that, but the gospel message breaks down all barriers. I mean, look at the situation we're in now. Christ, as a Jew, is engaging with the woman from Samaria. There are no barriers when the gospel is at hand. But sin is deceitful. And our sin may be even more subtle than this. It could simply be discontent with the circumstances that God has placed us in. And each and every day is just filled with grumbling and complaining. It may just be a, an unreconciled relationship that needs to be fixed. Friends, if any of these describe you, you need to repent. And perhaps there's something else that you are hiding. Perhaps there's something else that you're trying to, to keep back for fear of shame or, or judgment. Friends, if you need someone to talk to, please feel free to come and talk to me or to talk to any one of the pastors. We would love to help you think what repentance is and what that looks like. The reality is that as much as we try hide our sin, as much as we try justify our sin or downplay our sin or just brush it aside, there are consequences to our sin. More often than not, your sin is found out. Your sin will at some point come to life, either now in this life, or if not now, if you manage to hide it, you're gonna have to one day stand before the judge of the universe. You're gonna have to stand before God and all your sins are gonna be laid bare in front of you. If you're struggling now, friend, Sin has consequences in this life. It isolates, it shames, it, it, it brings guilt. Everything that this woman must have been feeling that she would go to this well by herself in the heat of the day. But perhaps you're listening to all of this and none of this really resonates with you. Perhaps you aren't even a Christian or, or maybe you grew up in a Christian home and you know, you just feel like, well, I'm not that bad. I'm not a bad person. I do more good things than bad things. I try to teach, uh, treat everyone with dignity and with fairness. You might even say that you're good with God. Or perhaps you're just listening to this and this just happens to be one of the roads that you're exploring on the plethoras of religion that you're engaging with. Here's the thing that we need to be reminded of. Here's the thing that you need to know. There is not a single one of us that can say we are without sin. Why? Friends, it goes all the way back to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. 
created to be in a perfect relationship, perfect fellowship with God. They rejected that. They rejected His rule. They rejected His authority. They rejected living in His place, under His rule, in fellowship with Him and said, no, we wanna go by ourselves. And that sin that separated Adam and Eve from God, that sin that brought death into the world, that left them spiritually and physically dead, is the same sin that courses through each and every one of us. And there is nothing that we can do to change that. But it doesn't end there. And as we will see, because of who Jesus reveals himself to be, we have an incredible hope. Look with me at verse 19. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you said that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. You see, as this woman is confronted with this supernatural knowledge of her life, she begins to realize that this man that she's talking to is not just some regular, ordinary Jewish man. And she perceives him to be a prophet and begins to address a, a big point of contention between the, the Samaritans and the Jews. Where was the proper place to worship? For the Samaritans, it was this mountain that she's referring to, Mount Gerizim, which they would have both been able to see from where they were. However, for the Jews, they maintained that Jerusalem was the one true place of worship. As noted by one commentator, this belief went back to the promise that God would choose a place to put his name and there people should come to worship him. And this place was Jerusalem, Mount Zion. But Jesus' response highlights the fact that there is a, a much bigger picture at play than whether or not one place or the other was a true place of worship. Although it should be said that the Jews were the ones who had the revelation from God. The Jews were the ones that, that, that God had revealed himself to and, and they were right, which Jesus addresses, verse 21. He says to a woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem we will, worship, you, uh, will you worship the Father. Verse 22, you worship what you do not know we worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. It's from the Jews because they're the ones who have the law. They're the, one who have the ones who have the revealed word of God. But the time of worship being tied to a specific place, well, that's coming to an end. Verse 23, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. A day is coming when true worship will not be whether the seat of worship is in Rome, as some would say, or in a nearby country. No, it's gonna be more about how you worship and who you worship. True worship is in spirit and in truth. So what does that mean? Well, to worship in spirit is tied with the Holy Spirit. 
It's tied with the Holy Spirit whom Jesus would give to all those who would believe in him and in line with the truth of God which has now been made known through the teaching and person of Jesus. True worship is not opening the Bible and picking and choosing what you like and just dismissing what you don't like. It's not following the cultural norms and and holding the Bible up against culture and saying, well, culture says this, so we're gonna take that over what Scripture says. That is not true worship. True worship is holding to the Word of God. True worship is worshiping God in everything that He has revealed to us, in all His commands, what He has said to us, and what He has revealed to us through His Son. True worship is worshiping the Creator of the universe, the one who seeks us, the one who reveals all things, and the one who has revealed himself to us in Christ. Verse 25, the woman says to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. And when he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. She's aware that There is a coming Messiah. Even though the the Samaritans don't fully know who or what they worship, they they were aware of this one who was going to reveal all things. But the irony here is that that is what Jesus has been doing the whole time. Friends, it's not by chance that Jesus found himself in Sakaar at midday at this well that she just happened to show up. No, no, he was pursuing her. He's fully God. He knew that this is where she would be. He had been slowly revealing himself to her, but she failed to see what was right in front of her. This is why we can only worship in spirit and truth, because we cannot know God without the Spirit. We cannot know God unless he reveals himself to us. Friends, Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus to you? Has he been revealed to you? Here's what I mean. Do you recognize who he truly is? Because if we don't, then our response may very well just be like that of the woman. It's cerebral. It's just acknowledging Christ, but it's not repenting. It's not turning. It's not falling on your knees before him. It's not seeing him for who he truly is. We saw that when she says, sir, I perceive you are a prophet. Is that you asking that same question or or making that same statement? Do you acknowledge Christ as just simply a prophet or a good teacher, but do not see Christ for who he truly is? Earlier on, I mentioned that this living water that that, that Christ refers to earlier on came with a a twofold cost. The first was to us in the sense of what we are confronted with in our sin, what we are called to, to turn away from. The second is the cost to God Himself. You see, our sin and our rebellion, friends, it deserves God's righteous judgment. If you are in sin, if you have not turned from Christ, you stand condemned. You stand deserving God's righteous, eternal judgment. But 
God in his grace, God in his mercy, sent Christ to take that punishment on himself at a great cost. It cost Jesus his life. He pays the ultimate price that our sins deserve by dying on the cross. He came to earth fully God and fully man. I wonder if you've noticed that as we've gone through this passage. The fact that he's sitting at the well, tired, wearied, that was just evidence of his full humanity. The fact that he, is, he knows these truths about who this woman is and what she's done shows his true divinity. And as a human, he lived a sinless life, which means that he was able to offer himself up as a perfect sacrifice on our behalf. But as he, he hung on that cross and, and cried out, it is finished and, and breathed his last, it didn't end there. On the third day, he rose again, showing that that penalty, that cost that needed to be paid had been dealt with that he had taken upon himself, that he had paid the penalty himself and that it was acceptable to God because he was raised from the dead and now sits at the right hand of God. Friend, if you have not yet believed or, or responded to this truth, I'm gonna urge you, you need to do that now. Don't leave without considering these truths. Don't leave without asking yourself the questions of who is Jesus in my life and have I turned to him? Have I responded? He may be standing right in front of you. He may even be pursuing you right now. You may know many things about him. Do you ask yourself the question, am I a true worshiper? Jesus makes a distinction. He points out that there will be true worshipers. But, but they, rather do you simply acknowledge truths about Jesus rather than submitting yourself to him and putting your faith and trust in what he has done. The living water that Christ has that he's holding out to this woman and that he holds out to us can only be obtained by turning away from our sin and turning to Christ and trusting in what he has done. As we learned a few weeks ago, by being born again, by worshiping in spirit and in truth. This has nothing to do with where you were born or what your parents believed or, or what your family has done for generations or the traditions that you grew up in. It has nothing to do with that. It has everything, everything to do with Jesus. When we began this sermon, I said that we were gonna be faced with some difficult truths and questions that we needed to ask ourselves. I guess one final question is this. Am I a true worshiper of God? I say this because for many, being a Christian is more about where you were born, the family that you grew up in, the traditions that you observe, the fact that you attended church every Sunday growing up. It's got more to do with all of that than who Christ truly is. Is that you? Friend, is that you? What or who are you seeking? What or who are you worshiping? What or who have you ultimately put your faith and trust in? 
There is only one person who stands in front of you holding out this water of eternal life. There's only one person who does that. Are you truly worshiping him? Let's pray. Father God, we come before you reminded that your word is good, that your word is profitable, that even when we have to ask ourselves difficult questions, Lord, we know that you are faithful. And Lord, we know that we have hope, not because of ourselves, not because of any goodness in us, not because of anything we've done over the years, but we have hope because of who Christ is and what he has done for us. Father, I pray that as we walk away from this passage today, Lord, may we not be like the man who looked in the mirror and forgot, went away and forgot what he looked like. But may we apply these truths to our lives. May you be working in our hearts even now, convicting, bringing to light sin, opening our eyes to see the beauty of who Christ truly is. And ultimately recognizing that our hope is in him alone. Father, we thank you, we praise you and pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.